Welcome to Ragbag. My name's Frank Burton. We have a great show lined up. Last couple of weeks it's been mostly music. That's been great. This week it's mostly talking. I've had the absolute pleasure of Zooming with the poet Marvin Thompson. He's on the show later. Also, I've got some stuff of my own to tell you about, and that's great too. This is a great show. So, we're going to be hearing from Marvin Thompson soon. Marvin's poetry collection, Road Trip, was published earlier this year by PayPal Press. It's a beautiful book, and you know what? I think it's one of those gateway drugs. If you're a little bit, I'm not too sure about all this poetry business, not sure if it's for me or not, stick around. You'll hear some Marvin Thompson poems. Here is one of the things he's going to be saying to me. When I was a child, I was always taught that Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, that's the pinnacle of music, right? That's the pinnacle. And things like your pop music, yeah, they're good to dance to, but they're not on the level of Mozart. Bear in mind, Mozart's never going to make me get, get on a dance floor in a nightclub. It's not going to happen, right? So there were certain things that Mozart couldn't do. You know when you pass someone in the street and you don't know them or recognise them, but something happens between you as you pass? Maybe a nod or a smile. Maybe you'll even say hello and then you'll move on. And sometimes it feels really nice, doesn't it? You just shared a moment with a stranger. But even 10 seconds later, you can barely remember what that person looked like. The person you just saw. Already their face is fading from your mind. By the time you'll get home, you'll have forgotten about the whole encounter. Maybe if you live in the kind of town where people smile at each other in the street and that's not weird. That's just what people do in your town. If that's the case, maybe you had that kind of fleeting moment with four or five different people just on that one outing. There's no way you're going to remember any of those people. They're going to forget you as well. Sorry to say it, but you're probably not that memorable. If you're listening to this, you're probably a human being. I don't want to presume. Maybe you're listening to this 5,000 years in the future and you're a dolphin with a universal translator. But I assume you're a human being. And my point is, there are a lot of human beings. The only way you could be memorable to a passerby is if you look radically different to everyone else. Some people do. Maybe that's you, but even if it is you, you can't look that radically different. Whatever your distinguishing features happen to be, you haven't got three heads or antennae or something, they will forget you, probably in the same 10 seconds it took you to forget them. The thought that's occurred to me is this, that moment still happened, it's part of your history. That's a strange thing to say, I suppose, because, I don't know, maybe we have this habit of thinking of history as something that's recorded, whether that's written or video evidence or audio. Hey, Mr. Dolphin, how are things doing in 7020? Is TikTok still big? 
or the big one I suppose is the evidence of your own thoughts, your own memories. You obviously don't have time to write everything down. You probably have a Facebook friend who tries their best to document everything as often as they can for some reason. Yeah, I wonder what that kid from my history class 15 years ago had for breakfast this morning. But even those people can't possibly document every single thing that happens to them. It's nowhere near every single thing. What about just little thoughts that pop into your head and you couldn't possibly write it down or remember it because it's a tough one to put into words and anyway, it's not all that important. What we're talking about here really is your unrecorded history. That's most of your history. Most of the things that have happened in your life have gone unrecorded, even by your own brain. Unless you have a much higher than average recall, you have forgotten the vast majority of your life. Even this morning, can you tell me which pair of socks you put on without checking? You may think it's not important and maybe you're right, but my point is, this is a thing that happened. You putting your socks on this morning is a historical event, just as much as the Battle of Agincourt was a historical event. The only difference is, actually, there are several differences between those two things, too numerous and too obvious to mention here, but the difference that I'm referring to here is that one is a matter of historical record. It's written in books and stuff. And the other is simply unrecorded history, which is what most history is. No one will ever write a book about you putting on your socks this morning, even though to many, that will be more interesting than a book about the Battle of Agincourt. <laughs> I apologise to all the history buffs listening. I am actually making a valid point. I am sure that most people, even the history enthusiasts amongst us, would agree that we can all get through the rest of our lives perfectly happily without knowing the ins and outs of the Battle of Agincourt. You can get through the rest of your life quite happily not knowing what the Battle of Agincourt was about, when it was, who was involved. You can get through your life perfectly happily under the misapprehension that the Battle of Agincourt was a deleted scene from Lord of the Rings. I'm not saying it's not an important historical event of some kind. I'm just saying not everyone needs to know about it. But... Everyone wears socks, don't they? Or am I just imagining that? Am I being culturally insensitive? I apologise if that's the case and I would be really interested to hear from anyone out there who doesn't wear socks. Please do get in touch and tell me all about it. I really am interested. Tell me about your reasons for not wearing socks. Maybe you live in a hot climate and sandals are the norm. Or maybe you have some kind of sock phobia tell me about that too. I'm ready and willing to learn more about these things. And I don't want to be the sort of person who says things like, everyone wears socks, don't they? Because that's just another way of saying, I'm the centre of the universe, aren't I, everyone? I'm just saying, you could, in theory, write an entire book about someone putting on a pair of socks. 
it wouldn't have too many surprises in it, no major twists or turns. You'd need to be a master storyteller to make that thing interesting, but in theory it could be done. And then, if the book happened to be about you on this particular day, your experience of putting on your socks would then be a matter of historical record. But for how long? That depends on the circumstances, doesn't it? History books will only last as long as the human race lasts. That idea that I had about the dolphin with the Universal Translator was just an idea and it probably isn't something that's going to actually happen. And if it does happen, who's to say dolphins are going to be in any way interested in human history? They have their own Universal Translator. It may be the case that wombat history might be more to their liking. Listen. I started off making a point, didn't I? When you see strangers in the street, they don't remember you afterwards and you don't remember them. And because no one remembers it, it's almost like it didn't happen. Almost, right? But remember what I said about that. It was 10 minutes ago, you might not remember it now. I'll repeat it myself. In that moment, it feels good. You pass someone you've never met before and you look at each other and you smile and it feels good and you have made that very brief connection with another human being and the weird thing is that's the extent of your relationship with that person your relationship with that person has been 100% positive how many people could you really say that about I'm pretty sure unless you literally just stepped out of a greetings card I'm pretty sure you couldn't say that about a member of your own family or any of your friends. 100% positive, come on, no one is 100% positive. If you'd stop to spend 10 whole seconds in the company of the person who smiled at you in the street, there is only one direction that percentage score can go. I haven't had that many one night stands in my time, you know what I mean? That's just the way it is. The handful of one night stands that I've actually lived through I can't remember most of it, but I do remember a high degree of awkwardness, embarrassment, unexpected amusement. Could anyone out there genuinely say they've had an actual one night stand that if a version of TripAdvisor existed for that sort of thing, they'd rank it 10 out of 10? If so, please do get in touch. That sounded slightly creepy. What I meant to say was, I'm interested in hearing about other people's experiences that challenge my own assumptions. Only joking, I just want to hear about your sex life. Only joking again, I don't, I really don't. Don't tell me about it. Right, I've rambled on for quite a while now, listeners, and I still haven't got to the point that I wanted to make. We have a wonderful guest waiting in the virtual wings. We cannot keep them waiting, but this is not over. I will continue talking to you on this very same subject next week. Let's have a tune.
Now it's time for this week's guest. Marvin Thompson is an attention-grabbing poet who has important things to say and he says them with warmth, wit and a formidable skill. We talked about a bunch of different stuff. We talked about his new book, Road Trip. We talked about the history of slavery and how reading that history changed Marvin's understanding of the world and his own place within it. We talked about the importance of considering a story from more than one perspective and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Let's hear one of Marvin's poems and then we will hear from the man himself. Samantha Suitcases carouseled in Pacific Standard Time A black barbie was dropped by a pouting girl I crouched down for it The girl's grin was endless The same kind of smile I hoped for from Kai's children He felt more my man when he mentioned them His jokes buoyed but then I pictured his granddad, Aid, in the dark of a 1940s Kentucky noon where church hats were darkened by woodland shadows. My gran watched time pass through her camera's viewfinder, the crowd buoyed. Her friends were all grinning pigtailed girls the rope just out of shot. Aid was still a child, his burnt limbs blurred. The photo marked the start of the end for my mum's lungs. She asked me, please put this to an end. I froze, her bedside lamp pushing back the dark, her yellow eyes turning me into a trembling child. She pointed to her bag. Its leather was cracked like time, the photo in a pocket made for girls to zip secrets. They lynched him. He was just a boy. Call me Mama Budron. His smirk was boyish. Then tears trickled, the room's heat endless. I gazed at the creased photo like a girl infected by its terror and its darkness. A date was scrawled, 12-7-41. I heard time grind. Mum's face looked faint as she lay childlike. This photo gave me nightmares throughout my childhood. Your gran made me date a Ugandan boy out of guilt. Asleep. My mum's scent seemed beyond time, like my Tewkesbury gran, whose words had soft endings and a Kentucky twang that twirled round her dark room, a place that held more magic than Kodak girls. In the airport hotel room, I dreamt Aid's white girlfriend, 
a tall, sweet sixteen who fled west with her child, and my first Skype with Kai, my sorry sounding bitter and dark. Us made my heart leap and leap like a boy. In the shower, I prayed that our meeting wouldn't be the end. In the cab, my neck pulsed in panicked time. My Nikon's my life, I told Kai. The sure, dark, Kai's boy and girl chasing the sun's end. We raced the children, smiling wide as time. So first of all, my dad was heavily into music. He listened to jazz. Then he would have Swan Lake on. Then he would have Marty Robbins, who sings country and western. Then have some, you know, pop. He, he liked soul as well. He had a full range of musical tastes. And he basically educated me and my two brothers on having that kind of wide and various musical experience, basically. And I listened to a lot of music mostly music from the African diaspora. So a lot of jazz, I love jazz, grime, hip hop, drum and bass, soul, gospel, reggae. That's my diet, really like music. And jazz especially, because what happened, what happened with jazz was, when I was a child, I was always taught that Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, that's the pinnacle of music, right? That's the pinnacle. And things like your pop music, yeah, they're good to dance to, but they're not on the level of Mozart. Bear in mind, Mozart's never going to make me get, get on a dance floor in a nightclub. It's not going to happen, right? So there were certain things that Mozart couldn't do. Yeah. Definitely, right? You know, there's some people who make some really great club songs and you're thinking, you know what? Why isn't this guy getting lauded for his kind of, his, his, his brilliance? Anyway, there's always that idea that your Mozart's, your Rachmaninoff's or whatever were the greats of music. And for a young black boy in London, that wasn't really helping me to feel positive about myself. What you're basically telling me is these white guys from history are, are the greatest musicians ever. Anything a black guy has done for music isn't anything. So for my self-esteem and my, and my self-worth, that was not, not helping me at all. Of course, I had a great dad who was into jazz and so forth, and it was good at kind of um, boosting me up in those areas. And for my dad, I realized that actually, Charlie Parker's, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Alice Coltrane, all these great lineage of African-American musicians were more than a match for your Tricoskis and so forth. I mean, some of the greatest jazz musicians, like John Coltrane, for example, just the way he uses music to shape emotions, shape ideas and so forth, you can quite easily say, for example, that take that are better than what you call it, Tchaikovsky, because of the way it makes you feel. No problem. But for me personally, it was very easy for me to see jazz as a match, as a quite simple match. And from, from my mind, a more emotional kind of music um, genre than classical. And that was kind of very important to me. And it, influ it, it influenced me in terms of, um, it kind of gave me license to see myself as, if you like, a black person who's been artistic. And one of the great jazz musicians that I found out was a guy called Joe Harriet. Now, Joe Harriet was part of the Windrush generation. 
and he was a Jamaican um, saxophonist. Now, in jazz in the 1960s, there was this movement called free jazz, where basically a lot of jazz musicians were starting to move away from kind of fixed forms and structures and be more free with their kind of um, jazz vocabulary. And one of, the, one of the guys was a guy called Ornett Coleman. And Ornett Coleman is almost seen as the first person to, as a, as a band leader, to kind of instigate this free jazz movement. But actually, Joe Harriet, Jamaican Joe Harriet, was actually doing free jazz things before the American guys were doing it. So, right. and he was doing it in Britain, because he, he'd come over from Jamaica, I think maybe late, late, late 40s or 50s maybe and he was doing that that free jazz thing before the americans were doing it now i'm sure someone listening to your podcast who might be a jazz historian is gonna go actually marvin no and gonna you know fair enough okay right but joe Howard was one of the first put it that way he was one of the one of the very very first he was a pioneer if you like and that in itself was amazing so in my collection of poems in my, in my sequence of poems called the one in which the children are listening to joe harriet and i'm educating them on joe harriet in terms of when you listen to his music how how does it make you feel and they give it and they and they say the music's crazy and angry which it yeah for for a child it is crazy and angry <laughs> it is mad music in a way but for me it's completely artistic it's like looking at a jackson pollock painting really you know they're pretty crazy. Um, you look at also like um, a Rothko as well. You're thinking, what's going on there? Similar thing happening with jazz in terms of, you know, just going, I want to express emotion in different ways. And so jazz has really helped me um, through my course as a writer to, to identify myself as a black person, being artistic and feeling that that, is, that, that can be validated because people in the past have done it. So I can do it as well. The one in which. Part one. The one in which my children discuss jazz while we set out to watch the Lego Batman movie in Blackwood. A crow rises into the morning mizzle as mist clings to the valley. Tired. I bark at my five-year-old Deris to focus on her seatbelt. She cries. I wipe mucus from her top lip and tell her there's licorice in my rucksack. She kicks my bag. Hayden, age six, shouts, This music's angry! On alto sax, Joe Harriet's abstract jazz swirls around us. Sad and crazy, snaps Derris. We fall into silence. As I drive, a smile curls. My mixed-race children are listening to something I want them to love. Art that sings Africa's diaspora and raises skin to radiance. But they haven't asked to learn a history of defiance or the blues dark beauty. Is this upbringing or brainwashing? Below the grey green hills in Havadronus, Hayden asks, does the trumpet sound like a forest fire 
on a rest. My best mate's mixtapes melted during the policing protest that blazed on Broadwater Farm. Should we tour the bliss and sadness those high rises hold for me? Where we lives not racist, I was once warned. Symbols shimmer, a loneliness rests. I was originally at Bristol University studying electronic and electrical engineering. And I think that was because my dad was an electrician. Back in the day, we had the universal perspective was like a book. Like a book, right? And when you re- when you read, say, the history department's entry, you would say, "We're going to study this period and that period." And it's like, great, I get it. With the electronic engineering, it was like you're going to do transistors, resistors, da 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 da. da. It just sounded all magical. It sounded amazing and wow. And I didn't actually realize how boring it was. <laughs> so I was in Bristol <laughs> University doing this course, and I ended up working a lot on the student newspaper. And I found that writing was my thing, really. Writing was really what I liked to do. and not so much messing around with electronics. So after a change of heart there, I ended up doing a English degree in London. That's where I'm from. And through that, I kind of just found a passion for writing poetry. It's kind of really, it's one of those things where, I don't know, I just had this desire to not only write poetry, but to get better at it. I've got to say, when I first started writing though, I was pretty rubbish at it. It took me a good 18, 19 years to get any good at it really. And then once I got half decent at it, yeah, that's when the magic happened. I think that's, that's, that's when it, it really clicked in. What really happened was I was plodding along writing. I've got a friend who is basically a bookworm. He's read all the classics like three times over, that kind of thing. And he decided to mentor me. He's not writing himself, but he knows what to... When he reads something good, he knows it. Because he's read so, many, so much good stuff, you know. And it was very much a point of... In the start, it was quite a brutal process, it felt like it. Because I'd give him a, um, a draft or something. And he'd go, hmm, that's okay, but that's rubbish. That doesn't work. That's not working. That's not working. And it was... But it's what I needed. It's basically what I needed. Probably, I would look at it like... Working with him, I would have got to where I got to with him, but it would have taken me 10 years rather than three years, basically. So having a really good, focused mentor who knows what you're trying to do was brilliant. And that's what really helped me to become good at poetry. Having someone who would literally look at your lines and go, that line's not working, that word's not working, you know. And through having a mentor, it really just helped me to become a decent poet. In my early career as a writer, I went to writing groups and I didn't really listen. You know, I bring along poems thinking they were the bee's knees, they were the best thing since Lord Byron or whatever. <laughs> You've been like a workshop situation where they're saying, okay, you brought some copies of your poem along, let's have a look. And every point that was pointed out, it was like, no, you're wrong. No, that works. No, it was like, I wasn't listening at all. And that was one of the reasons why I wasn't developing very well. I do loads of reading. The problem with me was I thought I was good already. And then I started sending poems out to magazines and I got rejections, 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 rejections. But something within me was like, this is my passion. I want to do this and I want to get good at it. 
and I don't know why, but I kept going. I don't, because when, when I say 19, 20 years to get good, that sounds like a long time. Why would you spend, why would you want to spend so much time being rubbish at something? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm not really sure. <laughs> but um, in the end, it all paid dividends. And I would say the fast track to being a decent writer to good writer is either finding a writing group, which is easier now than I think because lots of things can happen online and via Zoom. Yeah, yeah. If you can find that one friend who can be like really honest with you and say that isn't working and here's why, and you know someone who knows who knows their stuff who's done lots of reading and can really pinpoint what's not working and really stay in the right course, that is so invaluable. Because if you try to do it as a as as a lone ranger. Takes you twenty years. <laughs> At what point did you reach a point where you thought, right, I'm good now, or have you not reached that point yet? Are you still, do you feel like you still got more? To well, here's what happens: once you get a publisher saying, "I want to publish your book," you can feel like you've arrived because basically, what happens then is someone says, "I'm willing to invest money in you." That's how good I think you are. Now, of course, after that, there's levels. There's like there's competitions, like just for example, in poetry, there's the Forward Prize and there's the T.S. Eliot Prize. And also your book might be recommended by the Poetry Book Society. Those are big accolades which you can measure yourself by, if you so wish. Um, but to me, it's like once you've got someone who's going to publish your book and a credible big publisher, when I, when I say big, in poetry terms, big, you know, not in like, not like Penguin or Random House necessarily, that big. But in, in poetry terms, big. Once you've got someone who's willing to invest in you, who's like a you know well-known poetry publisher, then you you can feel satisfied that you've that you're good at poetry. Now, obviously, like I said, from that point there's levels. And me, other person, I'm hyper competitive, so I want to be better. My next poem has to be always better than the last poem. Has to be, or then what's the point of me doing it? Okay. Each poem I write, I need to learn something new about, my, about, about myself as a person and what I think about the world and also about the writing process. And if I'm not doing that, then... And sometimes I'll be halfway through a poem, I'm thinking, this is, this is trash. In fact, actually, it happened recently. I wrote some poems during lockdown, early part of lockdown, and uh, I revisited them on the weekend. And I was like, there's five poems that I'd put my heart and soul into. I thought, these, these are trash. But what was good about that was it meant that my kind of trashometer was working. And that's really important as a poet, as a, any writer, you've got to be able to, to work out when your, your, your writing isn't doing well, so then you know when it is doing well. So, yeah, so I guess to kind of tie that up, it's like once you've got a publish a book deal, you can feel as though you can feel satisfied. And there are, if you want to measure yourself with competitions and so forth, you can. But I think that's not always the best way because sometimes what you're doing just won't fit with judges, for example. You know, um, there are plenty of brilliant writers who have never won prizes and never will win prizes. And it doesn't mean that they're not great. It doesn't mean that they're not enjoying their writing. It doesn't mean that their writing isn't connecting with audiences either, you know? Part two, the one in which I drive through crumbling, wandering, where the cigarette-raised crisp factory used to be. Despite its tireless roof and its weeds, there is an iridescence to Crumlin's crumbling colliery, except 
this morning as I cruise beyond its towering chimney. I imagine its bruising underworld, the scent of dust and sweat silenced like this valley's churches. I change gear as if in the presence of ghosts. In her Grenfell bedroom, with smoke crawling, would my Derris kutch her teddies or her barbies? In my vision, I lie by her door as carbon monoxide lines my lungs. The gas won't be confined. Assisted by cladding, it spreads over neighbours sleeping in front of TVs. I picture my Hayden nodding awake like a coal mine trapper who'd sit alone for hours as methane seeped from the coal seam. From Grenfell's 23rd floor, a son's goodbye sailed in a Snapchat. The roadside willows look weary. Derris asks, are my sandwiches Marmite? Sorry, I reply, wondering why I made her ham. Hayden yells, epic fail! Grenfell lacked sprinklers. Cost-cutting prevailed. In my mind, Derris runs down its stories. Her slippers are soggy. I don't think he's a William Faulkner. He's, um, what, is he, what is he, like a Southern Gothic writer yeah. um, from, from the US. And the Gothic, if, I love fiction or poetry or any kind of art which has got a dark side to it. You know, so reading, I've read lots of Faulkner. And some of his stuff is also, also very modernist and very kind of um, film of consciousness. But for example, one of his books that I love is called um, The Sound of Fury. And if you ask me what it's about, I do not know. But what I do know is when I read it, I enjoyed the experience, right? It was a great reading experience. Another book I read, which was a really, really helpful for me, was a book called um, History of Slavery by a guy called James Walvin. Now, James Walvin is a, um, a historian who's written lots of books on Black Britons historically and the slave trade, etc. And what was really good about reading that book, it kind of freed me up in a way because... It may sound a bit crude, but I, I'd always thought slavery, in terms of transatlantic slavery, was all about white people not liking black people and therefore they enslaved them. That was kind of my idea, all through childhood, right? So you can imagine that wasn't particularly nice. If, well, in fact, with white people, I'm thinking, yeah, but generally speaking, you don't like black people, do you? But reading this book, it taught me that slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, was actually a economic situation it was an industry and it wasn't that white people just naturally hated black people it was basically a system that's been set up whereby if you invented racism almost to a certain extent you could then have an industry and make some money out of it so it wasn't anything inherent it was basically businessmen being nasty businessmen basically and once i realized that it kind of freed me up to understand basically it freed me up to kind of not be so kind of angry at the world, if you like. I understood it directly as it was. It was a business, and like many, like, like many capitalist businesses, 
who cares who gets hurt in the process as long as I make some money, right? Much like, for example, the mining industry. How many rich people sent their own kids or their own uncles, their own dads or their own brothers down mines? Ain't happening, right? If you're a rich dude, but you don't mind sending some pauper down the mine. You don't mind sending some pauper up a chimney to sweep it out, you know? So all through history, there's been situations where richer people, if you like, some richer people, shall we say, some businessmen, often men as well, kind of go, as long as I'm making my cash, I'm good to go. Don't care. You know, and we also see that with the environment, how many like, you know, over the years, rivers have been destroyed by chemicals, pollution up, going up, up, up into the sky, you know, acid rain, all sorts. And the, the people, the industrialists are like, yeah, whatever, I'm, I'm making my profits. I don't care. So reading that book, A History of Slavery by James Walvin, really gave me an insight into a big part of my history because, of, because I am, you may not know this, um, of Jamaican heritage it kind of, it helped me to understand it in a way that I could accept and say, fair enough, I get it. It's basically people who want to make money and they don't care. And we see that all, all the time anyway. So that kind of contextualized things for me, if you like, and that allowed me to kind of, kind of almost put that to bed. Cause I've done a lot of reading in uni on black people in Britain in the 17th, 18th century. I've read, I've read, I've read quite a few slave memoirs, which, you read one and you think, okay, that's interesting. You read a second one and you think, wow, that's enough tragedy for, for a while. So it was almost, that was the book where I could now put to bed that, effort, that aspect of my personal reading. I could say, you know, you know what? I've studied the transatlantic slave trade. I get it. And I finally put a lid on it with that book saying, right, it was basically just an industry and they were making money in nasty ways. Got it to one side and now, now I can move on with other reading and so forth. From a writer's point of view, you know, it's like you have to understand something before you can write about it properly, I guess. Yes. And yes. sort of discovering that book, I'd, I'd imagine, would have allowed you then to write about that subject. Exactly. I mean, I think you did two things. First of all, it kind of, on that topic, it's all, so from a childhood basis, we, I never really learned about slavery or black history in school. So it was that mm. search, that search, you know, always thinking if I learned about this stuff maybe I'd feel more settled in Britain I don't really felt that I don't, I don't really felt English I want to say about 10 15 years ago so but what that book did it settled me and in fact actually after reading that book I could say to myself yeah I'm English because before it was like why do I want to be English because these English people enslaved me and so forth well not say me but my ancestors right but then when I read that book I thought no these people these, these businessmen did the same thing other people were just like your average person just trying to survive. You know, you can imagine the sailors on the ship, they, they're not necessarily particularly happy with what's going on, but they're thinking, I've got family to feed at home. One thing I did find out was really interesting, I, I'm somewhere up north, I'm not sure, I think it was Derbyshire actually, there were people, there were women in fact, who used to weave cotton to make fabric and then go, it would sell. And interestingly, as a kind of protest, they decided that they were not going to make any more, any cotton products that were made from cotton sent from America. Those kind of things as well kind of enlightened me to the idea that actually many of the average person, if you like, the working class person saw the slavery system for what it was. It was exploitation because they've been exploited themselves. That was encouraging and that made me feel, you know what, yeah, I can feel like I'm English. I can't feel like I belong in Britain. And so that book was really important to me in terms of, and then also 
it was a funny thing as well because I didn't write about slavery really because I thought oh, I don't do that because enough people write about it anyway but what it meant that it meant from a kind of identity point of view something was settled something was calmed inside me and I could go on with my life without feeling that I was searching for something because I was no longer searching I felt after reading that book <laughs> one book did it for me I felt like yeah actually I can't call myself English yeah English all right we can do this although now I live in Wales interestingly but um yeah very important book with the uh the history thing it kind of ties in with what I was going to ask you next about the uh the section from the road trip collection um yeah. uh, the many reincarnations of Gerald Oswald Archibald Thompson yeah. And the way that you use the magical realism to explore all the different ideas, they've got colonialism, personal loss, and all sorts of different things going on at the same time. I'd just be Ooh. interested to know more about the process of creating that series of poems. Uh, so can you tell me about where did the idea for it come from and kind of how did it develop as it went along? Right, so what it was was that I was writing a lot of poems at the point, that point, which were fictional, pretty much. And as you, as you read the collection, you will see a lot of them, like there's one section called the Baboon Chronicles, where obviously it's obviously a fiction, right? You, you don't get baboons running around South Wales, not yet anyway. And so a lot of it was fiction. And I thought, I want to write about my dad. And I got a little, like a mini commission from the Swindon Poetry Society to write a poem, which, which was going to be projected onto a garden wall. So I wrote a short piece about my dad. And I found out recently, because my dad, when he came to Britain, he was, I think as part of conscription, he went to, into the army. Okay. At the time, there was a thing called the aid and emergency, which is around about the time when they had the Suez Canal thing going on as well. And basically what it was, there was a port in Aden, which is now Yemen, and it was like the Brits were like, look, now our empire's weak, but we're going to hold on to the Suez Canal and we're going to hold on to the port of Aden because we're the Brits. So my dad was sent over there to kind of help, help him do that. And I found out that us Brits did some war crimes during Aden. So much so that the UN said, yo, Brits, no more war crimes in Aden. That's naughty. And the Brits said, we'll stop doing that. And then like a week later, they kept doing it. And one of the things they did was they would inject, uh, I guess, Yemeni people now you would call them, I guess, inject them with morphine, right? As, a kind of, as, a, as some kind of torture kind okay. of give him like morphine overdoses anyway my dad was in was in Aiden as a signal as an electrician so i don't think he was involved in that but i thought what if he was you know this is kind of twisted mindset i've got what if he was crikey be a war criminal and also my dad unfortunately passed away due to prostate cancer and during his his, his um his illness he was given morphine by nurses so my, 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 you know, my creative brain thinking did a story there. So I think the first section I wrote, which actually turned out to be now the fourth section or something like that, is where my dad is first administering morphine. Now, it's not my dad, really, because my dad's not called Gerald Oswald Archibald. <laughs> That's just a made-up name. Because it rhymes, A. A, because it rhymes Gerald Oswald Archibald. And also because it spells out the name, the word goat, G-O-A-T. Which, okay, which in slang means greatest of all time. So I'm just, it's a big up to my dad, basically. My dad's the greatest <laughs> of all time. Right, so point being, so that, that, that morphine story was basically the, the kind of 
the genesis of the whole thing. Once I wrote that, I kind of tracked back and I kind of had this kind of Narnia idea of going into a wardrobe and then you come to another world, right? Except I did the opposite. My dad comes out of the wardrobe, the mirror. And then at the same time as writing that, I also was listening to uh, Midnight's Children on Radio 4 because they had a dramatized version of it. And that kind of sparked the idea to kind of go, f- go fulling, go, you know, go all the way with this kind of magical realism idea. I'd never read a magical realist novel before, really. So my, that was my, kind of my first experience of it. And I thought, it was almost like I knew what, what magical realism was. So I thought, let me try this out. And hearing the Radio 4 um, adaptation, dramatization, was really helpful especially when I thought I'd finished the story and I realised there's so many different holes in my, in, in my narrative. You know, mm. there were certain bits where the character needed to question what was happening and initially didn't, but then Salman Rushdie's narrative kind of, met, kind of taught me basically how to write fiction properly, basically. Because there, there were many parts where the character was just blithely thinking, oh yeah, Dad, you used to be a soldier in 1700s and now you're a so, you know, Nah. So the bits where the, the main narrator is questioning what's happening, I, f- I think there's one bit where it's like, for two years, I, I, I just couldn't believe that it actually happened. Something like that. That came out of me listening to Salman Rushdie's novel on Radio 4 and realising that, that that needs to be sorted out. I need to, the narrator's too kind of trusting of what's happening. And, that, and, that, and also that was really handy for me to kind of have that kind of questioning because then I like a narrator who's a bit more human, really, because then it's more relatable and it's more enjoyable and more engaging. Yeah, I think I've already said, I think that the, the, uh, the end result is brilliant. It's just really, it's a really powerful uh, piece of work. And it's kind of, uh, you can tell that there's the personal element, but also there's the fantastical element as well. Um, so the combination of those two things, I, th- I think that's maybe what sort of gives it that, special something whatever it is yeah i think w- yeah. also what happened with that with that poem it was the first time i think i've already said this but i'll say it again it's the first time when i really delved into being autobiographical in my writing now obviously my dad has not reincarnated that's it hasn't happened but it allowed me to take some elements of my dad's life but also more importantly take the emotional truth you know of you know, since my dad passed away in 2000, I've wanted to write a poem, poem for him, but everything seemed quite twee and like, my dad's dead, let me have a few tears. It didn't really, to me, measure up to the person my dad was. Now, a poem like this, which is like a very long poem, I've got 11 pages long, something like that. To me, that is a monument to my dad. And that's kind of, a, that's the kind of poem that was such an important person in my life. It's the kind of poem that I want to write for my dad. Yeah, I mean, I think this leads on to a more sort of general question about your writing process. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you have a particular way of composing poetry that you've developed over time, like in partic- if any particular techniques that work for you in terms of just getting the words down on the page? Right. What I, what I tend to do is, because I'm a teacher, and also my family as well, I can't spend days and hours writing. Okay, so I've got a little thing where my most productive creative time is like 
say five or six a.m. We've woken up with a few dreams still going around my head. Half an hour's writing then is the perfect time because if I write at night, what I find is the next day I read what I've written at night. And I think that's a bit rubbish. Whereas stuff I write in the morning when I'm a bit sleepy is the best stuff. So that, so half an hour in the morning like that is worth three hours at night, for example. Now that's number one. Number two, I try and sneak in a bit of time here and there. And my, my little trick is I write on my phone. I don't write on paper or anything like that on my phone. And um, I use, I don't think we're a bit, Google Drive. And I use Google Docs on that. So basically, if I'm not, so it just makes it really easy at any point, let's say I'm on, I'm on the loo, for example, I can whip up my phone and write a few lines, put it back, do my business, good to go, you know. Um, today, for example, for today, for example, I was in Sainsbury's and I had, I had your uh, um, questions open for the interview. I'm making a few notes. You know, doing it on phone like that, it means when I'm in luck, you know, when I've got a bit of spare time, I can just, I can um, do some writing there. And so my process mainly is I try to read at night. So kind of, you know, it's just like 10 minutes reading, read at night and then about six o'clock in the morning, do half an hour's writing. And then in the day, as they goes, can I squeeze in one minute there, four minutes there, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes the desire just takes me and I'll spend a good two, two three hours writing. But that, that's rare. I really get that much time um, to actually do as much right as I want to, really. So it's, it's, it's about eking out time, really. It's about, you know, for years, I've, I've tried to find this perfect method of writing where you'd have, like, I don't know, six o'clock, everyone would, would, would leave the house or something, I don't know, and you'd have that two hours on your own, in, on your desk to write doesn't work for me um so yeah just get my phone and tap away basically and now i've even started writing essays like that all on my phone all on my phone it does mean as well that if i've got my laptop out for work or whatever and i've done my school work for example then i might have half an hour say where i can actually get on the keyboard and do something but it's all there because it's all safe to the cloud so yeah i know it's traditional and kind of romantic if you like to have a write of notebook, you know, leather bound and all that sort of thing. And you put your notes in there, it's all on my phone, all on my no, phone. No, I do, I do exactly the same thing. Um, just, <laughs> uh, just sort of, uh, it, it's really handy for just like, if you've got 10 minutes to spare, like in a doctor's waiting room or something like that, and you just pull your phone out of your pocket and then <laughs> it might not be any good, but at least you've uh, committed some words to the page. Yeah. And, and also what I do a lot of is I do a lot of composing in my head. So I don't know whether, so my car journeys can be anything from listening to an audio book, listening to music, thinking about the day that school's gone or composing a poem, for example, just kind of going through some ideas. And, and that means when you, when you do get to the phone process, then you've already kind of half written a poem or something like that. And also what's really hard at the moment is I'm working on, a formal poem called a villanelle. And the long, the long and short of that is, it means that all my poems, hope, hopefully all the poems in the next book are gonna be villanelles, which means I'm in that mindset of, so it's very easy to compose the villanelle, knowing that here's the structure, the structure's not gonna change, just the context that I change every single time. That makes it even easier in terms of, when I, when I do find time to write, I can often knock out a good poem 
say in, I'll say an hour, I could get one completed. So maybe two, two sessions of writing and get one completed. And then obviously you put it away, you, you, you come back to it and it might be good and you do some more work on it or it might be a bit rubbish and you think, oh, it's a bit rubbish. But, <laughs> but it's just helpful for me to have, rather than kind of some poets work, like you write one poem here, one poem there and see what happens. I've got like a, almost like, right for the next year, just write Villanelle's done. So the, the, the thought process of what's the form gonna be, blah, 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 that's out the window. Don't, don't, don't think about form at all, really. It's just about new content, new content. There we go. Well, it's, it's interesting that you've chosen the Villanelle as a form because I think it kind of uh, it, it puts a few poets off that because it's very precise and very sort of um, you can't mess about with that form, can you? It's 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 got to be a certain way, otherwise it's not a Villanelle. Well, here's here's the thing, right? If you ever get someone writing sonnets, for example, they're yeah. all have fourteen lines, right? You know, if someone writes a section of sonnets, they'll have fourteen lines, but they won't have the traditional rhyme scheme. They won't have the traditional pentameter okay. half the time. And, and, all, and then they're in disarray on the page sometimes. Sometimes you, you, you'll just get words on a page and it's like, well, it's a sonic I said so. No problem, fair enough. It's your poem, it's your book, do, do, do what you feel. So I've taken a similar approach with the Villanelle in terms of I said, you know what? Okay, I know what a, a Villanelle structure is. I know what, what the rhyme scheme is and, and the refrains are. I hardly use refrains, hardly use refrains, um, because, because my poems are often very narrative, the refrain actually gets in the way of a narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't hardly, but, but what I might do though, is use that end rhyme of the refrain, perhaps, or something like that, you know, or within say the 20 villains I've written already, maybe one or two have a refrain, the rest are kind of playing around with the, with the villanelle structure. But what I, but, but, but what I have stuck to, stuck to is the 19 lines, roughly speaking, it's Villanelle in its, in its kind of repetition of certain lines or words, and also all in ambit pentameters. And my thing is, is like this, I'm the son of a colonial subject. When my, when my parents were born, they were British by birth, even though they were born in Jamaica, right? Because Britain owned Jamaica, in fact, Britain, was in kind of cahoots. So England was in cahoots with Jamaica, owned Jamaica before it, it became a union with Scotland. So the, the right. union with England and Jamaica predates Britain, basically. So that, that was interesting. But the point being is, as a kind of son of a, of, of a of colonial subjects, my kind of revolutionary act, if you like, is to take those traditional English poetry structures and use them for my own ends, use them for my own artistic kind of endeavors. And if that means playing with them, definitely I want to play with them. I'm going to mold them to my needs. And if, if someone says, Marvin, that's not a Villanelle, I'll say, no problem, is it a good poem? If they say, yes, I'm good to go, you know? Um, I'm not, I don't play poetry form police. No, I, I, I look at it like this. If the poem works as a great piece of poetry, we're good to go. If it doesn't, then I've got to, redo and re-edit and modify or throw away. I've been two poems in fact, two villanelles about being stopped by police um, in this little sleepy part of Wales called Comfordor. It was quite frightening because it wasn't long after the George Floyd thing happened, right? I got stopped by police uh, okay. and not only was it stopped by police, they were driving an, a black unmarked car 
you can imagine you're driving along and someone's following you, you they're following you, and you're thinking, I was thinking, black BMW, tinted windows. Is that a gangster's car? A gangster's yeah. following me? It turned out to be the police, which was kind of like a relief. And, I think, and then it was like, George Floyd. <laughs> oh, oh no, oh no. And it, it was funny because then they asked me, when they, when they spoke to me, I said, are you lost? <laughs> I didn't know police will follow you to ask if you're lost or not. Um, but I said to, I said to them, because what, what happened was I was going to post a letter uh, and the post box was on an industrial estate and they're probably thinking, why are you driving up there? Anyway, I'm about to get out of my car to go to the industrial, to, to post my letter. I'm thinking, I've just stopped and the black car behind me hasn't gone past me. It stopped as well. So I ain't get out of my car. I don't know if I get out, they get out and they're not police, but there's some other kind of crazy guys. <laughs> What's happening to me? So I've driven on and I've gone away and then they put their lights on and they've gone, are you lost? I was like, no. Are you sure you're not lost? Like, no. I was, I was going to post my letter, but then I thought, you're following me. I don't know who you are, so I'm not getting out of my car. And I thought, oh, fair enough. Yes, yes, citizen, you're okay. So it was kind of a crazy experience. But then, speaking to my partner after that, I realized there's another way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it was it was during the five-mile restriction period that was in Wales. And I'd actually asked someone when I was up there in Comfortor the address, no, the street, because I was going to meet someone, a friend. And maybe what had happened is this person who spoke to me and gave me directions for, wait a minute, he's got a London accent. He's doing for more than five miles. <laughs> he's come from London. <laughs> and then maybe it kind of got all a bit stupid. And maybe the police were like, you know what? We've got this call about some guy who might be driving from London, five mile thing. Normally we wouldn't even bother. But because it's a quiet Sunday afternoon, stroke evening, let's just check it out. So it might have been all innocent, right? Yeah. And so I've got two poems now. One which kind of expresses my fear, and I think quite rightly, because I was scared at the time. And then one that expresses a possible, it imagines what the 999 operator might have been thinking, and it imagines what the police officers might have been thinking. You know? And that was, and that was good as well, because... With all these videos that you get of police not doing their job properly, there are, as we know, thousands, if not millions of police officers, female and male, around the world doing a brilliant job under very difficult circumstances. So it's, it's, it's good to remember that. It's, it's good to remember that, yes, there are some bad apples. And because of the bad apples, things can get frightening for people. I mean... If you think about it, you only need like 1% of bad apples and a, and a few videos like the George Floyd one to be scared, right? Yeah. But it's good to remember that most of the police out there are just trying to do a difficult job, you know, and often putting their life on the line to protect us, you know? So it was good. It was, it was, it was good for me as well to kind of go from angry Marvin, who's like, ah, I've got to stop the police, to, hey, there could be another side to the story. Benefit of the doubt. That, yeah. that, that, that was good for me. Part three, the one in which we travel 30 metres above the Sahari River. Mountain clouds clench like a maroon's fists as she sleeps beyond sugarcane and soldiers' guns with her sons and daughters in Jamaica's hills. Fists like Jack Johnson's, an 18th century Haitians, or an ANC activist's.
rain falls knuckle hard on the giant arms of a brass chartist. Crossing Blackwood's Bridge, I wonder at what age I'll hand Hayden and Derris the history of Mary Prince, the slave memoir I stole from school in year eight. That dusk, slurping dad's spag bol, I read. In Bermuda's heat, I hunched over with Mary. We raked salt from a salt pond, brine biting through our bare legs, shin bones exposed. Will my fury be passed on to my children? Will it be easy to explain why Chartists marched, demanding suffrage for all men and not women? From the stereo, Joe Harriet's alto tone hints at Calypso and conjures iron mind with calloused hands, iron used to forge oil barrels and steel pans that echo queso. By the road, wet beaches rise dark as flint, and the clouds hold an ominous tint. The first flakes of spring snow fall, ready to suffocate the land. My final question was about your uh, experience of being a teacher and whether that sort of feeds into your writing as well as all of this other stuff. It does in one very, very specific way. So as a teacher, I had to almost relearn sentence structure in order to teach it properly. Because what my, at the time, head of the department realised was, if you say to a student, a, a, a very common thing, hey, Billy, Francesca, Ivan, whoever, you forgot your full stop. Put a full stop in. And the student goes, where do I put it? And you, the teacher, go, end the sentence. And then she or he goes, where's that then? And, you, and then if you're not versed in the technicality of a sentence, you, you kind of just go, uh, uh, and you just go there, put it there, <laughs> right? But then when you start teaching about clauses, and subject and verb, etc. then you can give the student a structure, a formula, if you like, as to where full stop should go, where comma should go, etc. okay? And I was lucky enough to have a head of department, or as we call them in our school, leader of learning, who formulated these things so as a department we could teach consistently how to, to write sentences. And because of that, because I learned how to construct sentences accurately and then play around with different with the subordinate clause and the main clause it meant that i was much more assured in my writing i could use sentences really flexibly now i can well i can use sentences really flexibly now and that has really helped me in my poetry to not only use syntax in a flexible way but also use syntax in a way which it helps to read to understand because in the past one problem i had with my poetry was it was sometimes confusing, the sentence structure. And I always thought, well, what's the problem with that? Lots of poetry is confusing. So if mine's confusing, it must be good poetry, right? <laughs> I was, that was my logic. But no, it was just confusing. And part of the confusion was these long rambling sentences, 
where it was difficult for the reader to work out what was actually being said, what was the subject, what was the verb in that sentence. And by learning subject and verb and different clauses and where to put the comma, it just cleaned that all up. And it meant that I could write poems where my ideas were transmitted much more clearly to the reader. And especially when you're writing narrative poetry, what you don't want is, I'm sure you, you feel the same with fiction, what you don't want is the reader to be so tangled up in or not in, if you like, the sentences that the actual characterization, the plot, the tension is lost. You know, and of course you want to write in a sophisticated way, maybe in a poetic way, but you want that not to be at the detriment of, say, the narrative drive or the characterization, you know, because if you lose that, also what you lose is the reader. You know, and if you want to impact the reader in a kind of emotional way or maybe deliver some kind of message or thematic kind of idea, you don't want it lost in naughty syntax. Right. And it's, it's an important thing to stress to, um, you know, uh, well, while we're talking earlier on about um, things that uh, it'd be useful for new writers to hear about. And I think that is one of them as well. It's just the fact that you don't want to have... Uh, any moments where a reader is having to read something twice or go or, or, or kind of check to see what does that mean? Which, uh, why is that comma there? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and anything that just makes you go, mm, it kind of throws you off the whole experience mm. and just ha having it flow properly is exactly. really, really important. In fact, in this one little te technical thing with poetry, for example, that I learned is for example, when you've got a poetic line, you want someone who reads that poetic line to kind of understand the full meaning of that poetic, poetic line. So I'll give you an example. If you've got a subject, a subject and verb in that line, then that will make sense by and large on its own as a, as a line of poetry. But what you can do, though, is you can split, you can end the line on the, on the subordinate clause, like, because I was angry, end line, and then got another line because you've got the subject and verb there because I was angry the was being the verb I be the subject the reader can actually hang on to meaning there and go I was angry because I was angry but what and then obviously it's almost like a mini cliffhanger in that example and then you go to the next line if you said if you cut like this because I was angry the reader's like because because what we talking about what uh, yeah, what's that about or because I, now, obviously a very skilled poet could make that work in certain circumstances, but as a general rule, you want to end your poetic line on a main clause or a subordinate clause and not cut them up. Just so the reader can kind of go, I get that meaning of that line or I get, or I get the meaning at that part of the end of the line. So I'm not confused. I might be waiting, there might be tension, but I'm not left in kind of some confusion as to why you ended it there. That's, that's weird, you know? And often the flow of a poetic line is as much to do with the sound of the words, also the meaning of the words as well. So if, if the meaning's really odd, then it just, it just doesn't flow right. But if, now you can sometimes correct that by being so skilled in the musicality of the language that it kind of overrides that. But generally speaking, you want to get uh, the meaning to, be, to, to flow and also the music of the language to flow as well in harmony with each other. So 
as I say, learning about clauses and subordinate clauses without those two key elements, my, I probably wouldn't have, I might not have the book that I've got today, basically. Part four, the one in which I recall standing in the cinema's cream-coloured foyer procrastinating over haagen My tongue's been stung with pangs for Ray and Nephew's white. Rum my dead Jamaican dad poured with joy over Cornish ice cream. Yesterday, as I indulged, the scent of his cinema licorice seemed to rise into the evening. Derris dancing to She's Royal, the voice of Paris Riley, a sweet gruffness. On the big screen, Noonlight Cascades. Rihanna's makeup advert opens to a gull's flight above a cityscape. There's a sheen to the folds of a young woman's hijab and another woman's cheeks hold an onyx darkness. Curbs and car horns cut to luminous office blocks, freckled shoulders and St. Lucian blue eyeshadow. The ad's bass jabs and I imagine dad crooning ride cowboy cowboy ride as Hayden dabs. My feet fizz with a sense of Caribbeanness. A Barbadian is selling foundation to my daughter and her white friends. Mainstream marketing is targeting melanin. One day, I'll tell Derris that I hoped she'd have an afro here. The combing and cane rose writes I would have held her hand through. Should I be happier that she fits into her white Welsh world? The film starts. Chatter fades as my children munch butter kissed. Here it is. The scent of licorice. Thank you for listening. Many thanks to Marvin Thompson. I highly recommend getting hold of a copy of Road Trip. Details in the show notes. Check out my books, A History of Sarcasm 100 and Everything I Am. FrankBurton.co.uk is the website to end all websites. <laughs> Not really. It's just good. That's all I'm saying. We've got another poet on next week, by the way. Theophilus Quek from Singapore. It is going to be great. That will be a great episode. I will see you very, very soon. Bye-bye.